Well, we're on a series, uh, we're getting ready to launch called Heroes, and I guess we got some softball heroes in the room. So excited about that, but uh, <laughs> uh, I was excited to hear that since I didn't play, uh, have an opportunity to play. I feel like we should win anything that we're involved in at all times. It just seems fair, and so uh, good job. Uh, fellas for being a part of that. Well, it's awesome to be back with you. I missed uh, a week last week. I was out of town at a conference. I heard uh, Pastor Chris came and brought the thunder, and we had a phenomenal week, and so I'm really uh, excited uh, to be back and to be launching into this series called Heroes. And for the next several weeks, we are going to dive in uh, and talk about different folks from the scripture who were heroic, but we're going to get specific and talk about maybe some characteristics about them that may not have seemed heroic at the time, but in hindsight, we can recognize this attribute and created a absolute heroic story for them. And we're going to dive into some heroes that maybe you recognize, some you don't. Um, next week, I'll give you a quick snapshot. We're going to be talking about Rahab and, uh, and her heroic uh, part in history. And here's one of the things that I love. All of these people that we're talking about, they're not characters in a book. They're people who lived historically at a time and in the moment, they never had the benefit of hindsight, looking back to recognize. We get to see the end of the story. We know as we start getting into their story where this thing goes. But in the moment, they did not. And I'm so struck as I began just preparing for this that we don't always have a good picture of our life's impact in terms of just history as a whole. We don't realize sometimes that uh, some of you are in here and you're quite young and you don't realize that you're somebody's great, great grandparent. That someone may sit around and tell a story about you and you're somebody, somebody. You have a story right now about an uncle or an aunt or a great uncle or a crazy cousin or someone who, uh, who did something uh, that was adventurous and left an impact. And it's a story that's inside of your family and in your, your, uh, your family's story. And that person in the moment, they didn't know that they were part of your story, but they are just like you're part of their story. I have a relative, Grandpa Chandler, and uh, Grandpa Chandler was the preacher in the family. He was, believe it or not, an open Bible preacher. Um, he actually was the president of the Bible college when we had a Bible college in Florida. And uh, he was a, a preacher in the time where preachers would go to a town and they would preach for a couple years at a church. Then they'd get a phone call and just be told, hey, you're going to a new town now. And he would just pack up everything and he'd go to a new town and he'd go to that church and he'd preach there for a while. I think he probably had about two years worth of sermons and when he got to the end of them, they just called him up and sent him to a new town. But, uh, <laughs> but, but that was Grandpa Chandler. And Grandpa Chandler went from uh, uh, all across the Midwest, ended up in the, in the West Coast. And he preached and never just stopped preaching. He would preach and preach and preach and preach. Um, he, was, he got quite uh, up there in years. And I don't know if I've told this story before, but it's just a crazy family story. So Grandpa Chandler would not retire. And I don't know, some of you know some preachers that need to retire and they just won't retire. Because it's just, how can you stop just doing the thing God's doing? You should change. You should evolve and do the next season. But he wouldn't stop. And so he was the guy that whenever there was a pastoral transition, they would call him and he would go fill those roles until they found another pastor. So he was quite up there in years and he got called to come and be in transition, a pastor at a church. And so he was pastoring that church for a season. And Grandpa Chandler was up in the front. These are the family stories, right? And it was time to serve communion. Next week, we'll do communion. And he begins praying over the communion. As he's praying for the communion, he goes to be with Jesus in the platform. So I have this picture in my head that I would hear about, it's actually great grandpa Chandler, but about great grandpa Chandler. And here was what I had in my head. This is my body, which is for you. And there goes grandpa Chandler <laughs> straight to heaven saying, I gave my body for you guys. That's the picture I have, right? That's my story of great-grandpa Chandler. And I never met him. I didn't know him. I didn't hear an audio tape. I've seen a picture. And here's what else is amazing. Grandpa Chandler's not blood-related to me. He's through marriage. And I grew up not going to church. I wasn't in a church environment. We went to a Spanish-speaking church for a while. Now, I don't speak Spanish. And so for me, church was a place where everybody spoke in the spirit. Right? And so I just sat in the back and I drew pictures 
And then the offering would come around and my grandmother would give me a, a little handful of change and I threw some money in there. And that's all I knew. I, I knew two things about church. One, I didn't understand anything. And two, if I was good, we got to go out to lunch. If I was bad, we went home and ate hot dogs. That was Sunday for me, right? That's all I knew about church growing up. And so, and so uh, later my mom married my stepdad and the stories of Grandpa Chandler became part of our stories and part of our history. But here's what he didn't know. Grandpa Chandler never knew that someday his grandson would marry my mom and would become my stepfather and that his story would become my story and that I would begin hearing that there was a preacher in the family. Grandpa Chandler didn't know that. Grandpa Chandler didn't know that any of you would ever hear about how he went to be with Jesus, all right? But that's a family story. But in that moment, he didn't know any of those things. And so my grandmother on that side would tell me stories. And later in middle school, when I, uh, actually junior high is what we called it back then, when I became a follower of Jesus, and as I began to kind of explore that space of God's calling in my life, there were people who would say, oh, you're the next preacher in the family. And I was like, next preacher in the family? And I was thinking, man, you know, who would have thought some kid that, you know, would sit in the Spanish-speaking church not understanding anything would go on this path? See, I love a good backstory, I think heroic things all have great, good backstories. And so today, I'm going to take us into a story that's heroic. But, but these people that are in the story, they didn't realize how heroic these moments were in the time. And I'm going to do something a little bit different today. So we're going to explore this space together, okay? And if it tanks, just write in a comment card and send it in to me. But I want to talk about Joseph. Here's the problem. Joseph's story is quite long. It's about a little more than a third to a half of Genesis. It starts in Genesis. I'm going to take us from Genesis 37 to Genesis 50 today. All right. Some of you know I can talk a lot when I talk about one verse. And so, so I'm going to take us through a little bit. We're going to do a little bit of story time, and I'm going to walk us through this heroic story. And here's what this only works if you go ahead and you read the story and make sure that I didn't make any of this up. And then I will give us some scriptures as we go and we'll talk through this story. And I want to talk about this heroic moment in Joseph's story and how it changed us. So can we try this this morning? Are you willing to go on a little bit of an adventure with me? If you're ticked off already, you can bounce. I'll give you a second here. I'll look away. All right, that was your moment, so. <laughs> so we're going to dive in. If you got your Bibles, um, I, oh, go ahead and open to Genesis 37, and we'll get there. I'm actually going to start in 27, so there you go. Um, I'm going to keep walking us through this story, because we got to tell the backstory a little bit, and we got to get into the, uh, into the uh, family line a little bit, so that you can recognize what happened with Joseph. And, and I've titled this, Joseph, the Vantage Point. Because Joseph's story has an incredible perspective to it. That's what a vantage point is, a perspective to it. And as he goes through what he goes through, he never loses track of this incredible perspective. And I want to give you a little bit of where this perspective starts. And so we're going to be in, I'm going to be in Genesis 27 for just a second, and then I'm going to jump to 37, and then I'm just going to roll all the way through to 50, and then uh, we'll go blow off fireworks in the next couple days, and we'll have fun. So it'll be a good time. <laughs> so we got to start with who, well, I told you I was worshiping hard. My voice is going already. That might be what gets us done. I might have to loosen this up a little bit. Get ready to preach. <laughs> My voice is going. So we got to talk about his great grandpa for a second. A guy named Abraham, the most famous family in the history of the world, Abraham. A guy named Abraham. Abraham has two sons. We know them, Isaac and Ishmael. We know that Abraham had a hard time uh, getting pregnant. It took a long time. He tried to do it his own way. Ishmael showed up. He trusted God. Isaac showed up. We know that Isaac has a set of twins. Those set of twins are Jacob and Esau. And in Jacob and Esau's story is incredible. Esau's the older brother. And you got to read the stories because the stories are amazing. If anyone ever tells you the Bible's boring, they have not read the Bible. All right? There is so much good fascinating, bloody, gory, amazing stories in there. It is the best set of stories. Even if you just read it as a set of stories, read it as a set of stories and see if it doesn't change your life. Jacob and Esau. Esau's the older brother. Thank you. Esau's awesome. 
He's big, hairy, burly, manly guy. Speaking of manly guys, I was out shooting guns yesterday, and uh, I had a non-manly moment. I just got to admit it for a second here. We're firing. I don't know if this has ever happened to you. I'm wearing a collared shirt, and some brass flies over and gets caught in my collar. And I might have squealed and spun. And the person next to me might have been in panic mode as I spun around and squealed with a, a firearm in my arms. Then I got home, and I, no one, of course, none of them had any sympathy. And then I got home, and I showed my wife. I'm like, look, I got, I got burned. And she's like, what hit you? And she's, you know, she doesn't know firearms that well. I was like, you know, the, the brass hit me. And she's like, what's that? I'm like, the shell case. And she's like, a bullet hit you? What were you doing out there? So I had some explaining to do yesterday. So that was Esau. Esau was that guy, right? He's out in the, he's out in the woods. He's hunting. He's getting game. He's kind of a, a burly guy. He's the firstborn. And in that culture, he is the leader uh, in, in waiting of the family. And he has a twin brother, Jacob, who came out second. Jacob has a totally different personality style. Jacob's sly. Jacob makes moves. Jacob's a negotiator. Jacob likes to hang out and cook. Not only does he cook food, he cooks plans, right? He's, he's that guy. And so when they're teenagers... There's some teenagers in the room. I'm just going to get real for a second. Esau's frontal lobe has not fully developed yet. He is not making good decisions with his life yet. And he's hungry. And he's so hungry that he decides if he doesn't eat right this minute, he's going to die. Teenagers, you know what I'm talking about. You've been there. I got to eat right this minute or I'm going to die. And his brother strolls in. He's been cooking. He's got a pot of stew. And he shows up to his brother and he's like, hey, what's going on? He's like, give me some of that food, I'm gonna die. This is an interesting moment for a younger brother. Anybody in here a younger brother? Most of the time as a younger brother, you never have an advantage on your older brother. You may have the thing he wants, but he'll just take it from you. But in this moment, he has the thing that Esau wants and he begins to negotiate. Remember, teenagers, frontal lobe, not quite there. He's like, here's what I need you to give me, bro, for these beans that I've cooked. He's like, what? He's like, you give me the birthright and the blessing. What does that mean? You treat me like I'm the firstborn. And that means when dad passes away, I'm now the law around these parts. I have the legal uh, responsibility of our family. I'm the authority. I am the greater of the inheritors. I want all of that. Esau's like, dude, I'm hungry whatever. And he gives it up. Now, eventually he's not hungry anymore. Frontal lobe kicks in. Hey, I got worked by my little brother. Any older brothers in the room? A couple of us? Yeah. How do we treat our younger brothers when they try to work us? Yeah, it doesn't work out for them usually, right? It ends with a pounding and a lot of whimpering, and the mom has to get involved usually. Right? So this is what happens. These two brothers go essentially to war. So Jacob, who's now a, a, a absconded with the blessing, he's gotten it, he takes off. And there's this amazing long story of him going and living with his uncle. He falls in love with his uncle's daughter. It was normal in that time period for that to happen. He decides he's gonna work for her for seven years to kind of get her as his bride. His uncle manipulates him and he's the master manipulator and he ends up taking the wrong sister as a bride and then he has to work even longer to get the right sister. And, and this family's just messy and it's, there's manipulation and things are just crazy. I'm telling you, this is great stories, all right? <laughs> So Jacob eventually has a couple of wives and some herds, and it's been years and years and years and years. But he's got a big brother still out there who hates his guts. Their father, Isaac, passes away, Genesis 27, 41. And Esau says he held a grudge against Jacob because of the blessing his father had given him. Now, Notice he doesn't say because of the blessing he had sold out when he was a teenager. It's obviously his father's fault for giving the thing that, but anyways. Because of the blessing his father had given him. And he said to himself, the days of mourning for my father are near, and then I will kill my brother Jacob. So Jacob lives his life with this knowledge that Esau's out there and wants to kill him. We're going to come back to that piece of the story in just a moment. You fast forward while he's on the run. 
Jacob gets, marries the two wives. Eventually, he has a loot of children. There are 11 sons at the point of the story that we pick up. But here's what happens in Jacob's family. This is how messy some of these families are. Some of you sometimes say, like, I want a biblical family. I'm like, I don't know what you're talking about. Biblical families were crazy. I understand you want, like, some New Testament principles in your family. That's what you should say. But you don't want, like, the biblical families are just, they're a mess. I mean, God's in it, and it's crazy. So Jacob marries two women, the sister he was in love with and the other sister. Now, just imagine being married to sisters in the first Are there any sisters in the room? You got a sister somewhere near? Yeah. Just imagine how, yeah, yeah, I'm with you guys, right? There's just no way. And to make matters worse, one of the sisters, the one that he loves less, Leah, she is just cranking out son after son after son after son after son. Rachel, the one he has always been in love with, isn't having any kids. So about four sons in, Rachel freaks out. She's like, I'm going to be the discarded other woman in this relationship because I can't bring children into the relationship. So here's what Rachel's plan is. She says, I'm going to bring my handmaiden in because I own her basically like property. And you're going to sleep with her. And the child that she has is going to be the one that I raise that you're going to connect with me. Well, Leah, not to be outdone, is like, cool, we're doing that. That's a thing in our family now. And she starts bringing her handmaidens in. So Jacob literally is coming home. I'm telling you, this is in here. This is amazing stories. He's coming home night after night after night to different women that he's just like, they're, and they're just having his kids. And so you have this incredibly complex, family, messy unit. And these brothers that are half brothers and some are full brothers and some are, and, and you have all of this just mess. And then Joseph's born born to Rachel, the wife that Jacob loves. And Jacob says, ah, I finally got what I always wanted. And as a father, he just uh, really messes this thing up. He's like, this one's my favorite. Anyone here the favorite? It's awesome. I was, <laughs> it's okay. We can admit it, right? You can admit it. You're probably next to your brother or sister right now. It's like, whatever. You, we all know it, right? Joseph's the favorite. In fact, he's so the favorite that dad doesn't even try to hide it. And you heard the story of Joseph and his amazing coat. The father, Jacob, sometimes he's, he's had his name changed Israel by this point. Says, hey, here's your job in the family, youngest. See how this works out. You're going to be the professional narc on your brother's. Right? So I'm going to put this robe on you so that everyone can see that you're my favorite. I'm going to let everyone know I love you the best. And then your brothers are going to go out and they're going to tend our enormous family and our enormous herds and all that stuff. And your job is going to be to go out and report back to me if they're doing everything right. Okay. I want you to get, do you have a picture of these dynamics yet? You have a dysfunctional family. You have a bunch of brothers and half-brothers living in community. You have a dad who kind of came to prominence through manipulation, has been a manipulator, and has been on the run from his brother, uh, who he knows wants to kill him. He has a son who he has, is, as the youngest son, basically declared, this one's my favorite. He doesn't have to do the same work of the rest of the family. Even though he's the youngest, his job is going to be to go out and narc on his brother's. And you got a bunch of brothers like, are you kidding me with this? Now, his brothers are no joke. A few chapters before, they encounter a village that at this village, they mistreat one of the sisters. And the brothers concoct a plan to go in and, I mean, I can't make this stuff up. I won't even get to how gruesome their plan is. Let's just admit that it has a lot to do with an attack on the man zone of this entire village, okay? They go after and they annihilate an entire village. The brothers are no joke. And baby brothers, number one job is to what? Narc on the big brothers. This is the first family. These are the guys that the tribes are going to, I mean, this is Judah, right? This, this is crazy. So Benjamin isn't even born yet. We won't get to him yet. So Genesis chapter 37, I'm not making this stuff up. 
Uh, verse 2. Joseph, he's a young man of 17 at this point. Full frontal lobe. Probably not there yet. He's tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah and his, his father's other wives. And he brought their father a bad report about them. He came back. Dad, I don't know how to tell you this, but your brother, your sons, they're lazy. Right? He comes back. They're not doing what they said they're supposed to be doing. They're just chilling. It says, verse 3. Now Israel, that's Jacob, right? He loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he'd been born to him in his old age and he made a richly ornamented robe, ornamented robe for him. The thing about the robe, I, I hate to uh, kind of blow your children's curriculums out of the water. We don't know what the robe really looked like. We don't know if it was like a rainbow. And, you know, we don't know what, we just know it was ornament. Some of the translations will just say like a full length formal robe. Some will say kind of white, like the type of white that just reflected light. So it was like, a, you know, he was like shimmering as he walked around and, you know, he's just like, yeah, this is awesome. I got, you know, that's who he was. He's wearing that robe. And it says, when his brothers, verse four, saw that his father loved them more than any of them, it said they hated him and they could not speak a kind word to him. Remember, his brothers are no joke. They just wiped out a whole village. So I'm gonna fast forward a little bit through the story again here. I just want you to see I'm not making this up. So Joseph, one of the other things we know about Joseph is he's a dreamer. He has a dream. He ends up having two dreams. And in this dream, Basically, the interpretation of the dream is he sees that his brothers someday will all be bowing down to him. He's like, oh, that's awesome. So he wakes up from his dreams. And he goes to his brothers. He's like, hey, guess what? Someday you are going to be bowing down to me. Isn't that awesome? And he walks off in his robe. And he's like, yes. <laughs> and his brothers are like, are you serious? And his brothers tell it to their dad. And while they tell the dad, Joseph's having another dream, and he's like, there was a star and the sun, and they're all bowing down to me. Guess what? Dad, you're also going to be bowing down to me. Isn't that awesome? Love my robe, you know? He's just having dreams and talking about now. Is that wise? We don't know. You know, I, I put a little inflection in there to take the story a certain way, but, but, but this is what is happening in here. This is what is happening in this story. And the brothers are like, we're done with this guy. We're done. So dad calls Joseph in. He's like, dude, it's bad choices. Like, you probably shouldn't have said that to your brother because, you know, they're going to go crazy. And he's like, well, I don't know what to tell you, dad. I had the dream and it's from God. So there you go. And so he's like, all right, well, go check on your brothers. So he goes to check on his brothers and they're not where they're supposed to be. He's like, uh-oh, bad report card for you guys. He's taking notes and he's asking around, hey, have you seen my brothers? Have you seen my brothers? Have you seen my brothers? They're like, yeah, your brothers are over there. He's like, ah, it's not where they're supposed to be. So he goes to find his brothers. He's like, hey, what are you guys doing here? You're not where you're supposed to be. And finally, the brothers are like, done with this kid. Here's the plan. When he gets here, rip the robe off of him, kill him, throw him in a pit. No one will know. Brothers are like, yeah, that's a good plan. One of the brothers, Reuben, the oldest, is like, ah, we can't kill him. That's wrong. Let's just throw him in the pit, you know, and we'll kind of let nature take its course. And they're like, oh, okay, at least in our hands, you know, we'll be off, we'll be, you know, we'll be clean, no big deal. So they beat him up, they rip the robe off of him, they put animal blood on him, uh, on the robe, so it looks like he got devoured by a wild animal, and they throw him in a pit. Now these pits, these wells, they think they're like bottle-shaped, right? Narrow top, wide bottom, they just drop you down in there, you're stuck, can't do anything. So Reuben hatches a plan. He's like, I'll go back and let him out. You know, we had our fun with him, but, you know, that'll be, that'll be fine. But he doesn't realize that the other brothers hatch a better plan. They're like, you know what? A young 17-year-old boy is valuable. We could sell him. And they see some Ishmaelites. Now, remember, in the family tree, Ishmaelites, that's great-grandpa's brother's family. And they see some Ishmaelites, and they're like, hey, you guys need a slave? Throw me some coin. And for 20 pieces of silver, they sell their brother into slavery. Reuben comes back and he's distraught because he was going to kind of undermine the plan. He was like the big brother, the one with the conscience. Like, oh, I can't do that. But now it's too late. We're past the point of no return. So they return to dad with this robe. And they're like, hey, we found this robe. What do you think means? And they let dad come to the conclusion that Joseph is dead. Now I want you to catch up to the story now. We're all on the same page. This is a chaotic, crazy family. And Joseph, who has done nothing wrong other than be a teenager, right, and be the favorite, and probably run his mouth a little bit, all things that we can relate to being 17 at one point in our lives or someday, 
finds himself in a slave caravan. Now he has slaves. His family has slaves. He knows how they have been treated. He knows what he's looking at as a future. Something happens. The slave owners get to town and they, they find a person to buy Joseph. And the person that they buy, find to buy Joseph is a pretty significant man. It's a guy named Potiphar. Now Potiphar's significant because he is the head of like the executioner squad for the Pharaoh. Now Egypt's in control. Pharaoh's number one, and being the head of like the royal guard of the executions for Pharaoh is a pretty high position in the court. That's who Joseph finds himself enslaved to. Pretty amazing story so far. Now, something happens to Joseph. I want you to catch this. And if you're a note taker, you might want to write this down, but it's pretty awesome. He says, I, I, I worded it this way. Joseph decides to live like God has a plan for him even though it looks like God has abandoned him. Now, this is an amazing thing for you to get. I don't know about you, but if I'm in this situation and I've gone from favorite child to enslaved, my attitude is probably gonna go from ha-ha to mm -mm, pretty quick. It's not gonna take too long for me to get grumpy. It's not going to take too long for me to say, um, excuse me, God, like we had a thing going here. There were some dreams and you put some dreams in my heart. And now it doesn't look like those things are ever going to come to pass. Now, I've just been telling this story. Let me bring this into your story and into my story. How many of us in here would say, yeah, there's been some dreams that we've had maybe since we were younger, that God's put into our heart, that God's placed into us. Maybe some of us had dreams for our work. Maybe some of us had dreams for our family. Maybe some of us had dreams for our kids or for our marriage or for our, what we would do in ministry or what we would do in life. Or that maybe some of us, we, and there are some dreams that were in our heart and we know God put those dreams into our heart. They, they resonated. It, it was like, wow, this is awesome, God. There's this dream in my heart. And then all of a sudden, the tides kind of turned. The situation kind of changed. And you found yourself in a situation that looked nothing like the path that the dream God placed in your heart looked like. I remember going to Oregon to plant the church that we planted there. And I remember having this dream. I was like, ah, oh, it's going to be awesome. We're going to just land and God's going to give us this territory and we're going to meet people and they're going to partner with us and, you know, we're going to change the community. And I land and it's the end of 2008 and nobody wants to talk to me. The economy is in the toilet. The house I was supposed to live in, I couldn't live in. Like none of the things that, that were just laid out like, God, this is awesome. This is going to lead to this. It's going to lead to this. And then you're going to show up. And it's going to be amazing. None of it was happening. You know what happened to me through the course of 10 months? I got angry. I got bitter. I started double thinking. Like, all right, God, you and I have had kind of a system about how we kind of agree on things. And the system has been, I kind of hear from you. I check with people. We kind of, it builds momentum in my spirit. And it, be, it goes from a good idea to this thing that seems like it simply must be. And then I take the step of faith. And then you show up and you make it work. That's our system. That's our plan. That's how we do it. And you're not doing your part. I did my part. I left a job I wasn't going to get fired from and a house that, you know, I, I, left, I left all that stuff behind because you, right, you wanted this. I didn't need this. Through the course of 10 months, the whole emotional gamut of, you know, here we come. It's going to be awesome. Oh, it's not so awesome. Oh, this is really not awesome. Hey, I don't know if we're going to be able to survive. Okay, now we can't eat. Now we don't have a place to live. Okay, now this is getting a little bit serious. And it took me about 10 months to just be like, I'm done. God, why would you do this to me? I want you to catch something. Joseph's about to have 13 years of that. 13 years, 13 years of there was a dream, I stayed faithful, I said what you told me to say, I did what you asked of me, and it doesn't look like this is going anywhere. 10 months, I'm like a broken man. 
right? I'm, I'm asking questions. I'm reaching out to mentors. Like, did I hear God wrong? Do you have a job? Like, I'm trying to figure out, like, how I'm going to provide. I have, I'm, I'm a man. I got to do my stuff, right? I have to provide. I have to do the things I'd call me to do. Like, what's going on here, God? Ten months, and I'm broke and broken. Thirteen years, this journey happens. Now, you and I, many of us, know the end of this story. And it's easy to just blow through those 13 years. I'm blowing through a lot of years in like 30 minutes here. But I want you to feel the weight of that for just a minute. Here's Joseph, 13 years later. Well, not quite 13 years. We'll pick up a little bit here. Um, I'm going to jump to chapter 39, verse 2, so you know that I'm still tethered to the word of God here. I'm not making this up. Joseph finds himself in the house of Potiphar. It says, the Lord was with Joseph and he prospered. What? <laughs> Let's just stop right there for a second. The Lord was with Joseph. If the Lord was with Joseph, his brothers wouldn't have thrown him in a hole. If the Lord was with Joseph, 20 pieces of silver wouldn't have been enough to buy him into slavery. If the Lord was with Joseph, he shouldn't be experiencing the need to prosper as a slave. That's my perspective. But that's not Joseph's vantage point. When Joseph tells this story to his kids and their kids tell this story to their kids and their kids tell this story to their kids, they say, the Lord was with Joseph and he prospered. Get out of here. It says, and he lived in the house of his Egyptian master. And when his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the he, uh, Lord gave him success in everything he did, Joseph found favor in his eyes and became his attendant. Potiphar put him in charge of his household and he entrusted to his care everything that he owned. And from the time he put him in charge of his household and all that he owned, the Lord blessed the household of the Egyptian because of Joseph. The blessing of the Lord was on everything Potiphar had, both the house and in the field. So he left Joseph's care, everything he had, and Joseph was in charge and he didn't concern himself with anything except for the food that he ate. I just want you to catch this. Joseph, sold into slavery, says, this must be part of God's plan. And he behaves, he behaves as though God is still in control. He decides to live like God has a plan for him, even though it seems like God has abandoned him. Verse 21, let's skip ahead. It says, the Lord was with him. Again, there it is. And he showed him kindness. And, oh, here, this is hilarious. So I, I, I skipped a piece of the story here because I got excited. So Joseph, doing everything right, Potiphar's wife, some of you know this story, is like, dude, this young man's good looking. He's our slave, so I'm going to do what I do with anyone that I want who's my slave. And Joseph is like, wait a second. I'm not just a slave. I'm entrusted with the whole household. And everything in this house, I have permission to have, except for you. You're the wife of my master. Don't do this. And she's like, uh, you're a slave. So I'm going to do whatever I want. And he's like, I'm out. And he runs. And she rips his garment off as, he gets, as he's trying to get away. And then he ends up being accused of attacking her. And so what happens to him? He gets thrown in big boy jail. You got to remember this Potiphar, he's in the king's court. He's the head of the king's royal execution squad. And so he goes to big boy jail now. Not only is he a slave, he's a slave who's accused of trying to assault the wife of a person of great influence in Egypt. We're talking big boy jail. He's just in jail now. That's like his new gig now. Great. Again, has he done anything? No. He's just living like God has a plan, even when it seems like God has abandoned him. Verse 21, and it says, Then the Lord was with him and showed him kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. Now, again, this is a logical absurdity to me. How can the Lord be with you if you're in big boy jail? You haven't done anything wrong and you're in prison, like the royal prison. Pretty soon we're going to meet a couple of guys. One of them ticks off Pharaoh and just gets beheaded like that. Like you're in, you have nothing. You're in the Egyptian prison. Yet when Joseph tells this story down the line, ah, oh, the Lord showed kindness to me. The Lord showed favor to me. I was in prison, but the Lord stayed with me. Verse 22, so the warden put Joseph in charge of all those who were held in the prison. He becomes in charge again. He was in charge of his brothers, 
He was in charge of Potiphar's house. Now he's in charge of the prison. This guy just keeps on living like God has a plan for him, even though all the things around him seem to not align that way. So the warden paid no attention to anything under Joseph's care because the Lord was with Joseph and gave him success in whatever he did. The warden's like, you got this. You just run this place. I'm on vacation. <laughs> chapter 40 is amazing. You should read chapter 40. It's the story of uh, two uh, pr political prisoners that Joseph meets. Uh, they have dreams. And Joseph's like, oh, I do the dream thing. They're like, seriously? And he tells them what their dreams mean. One of them, he says, hey, you're going to be restored back to, to uh, your former position, and you're going to have access to the Pharaoh again. The other one, he's like, dude, it's not going to work out for you. And uh, <laughs> you're going to end up on a tree, and ravens are going to eat you. I mean, that's great. This is just honest. He tells the guy, he's like, hey, you're going to end up back in Pharaoh's court. Would you do me a favor? And just when you get there, would you mention that you met me, and that I'm here, and I haven't done anything, and I'm stuck in this position? The guy gets out of prison, goes back to Pharaoh's court, and guess what he does? Forgets. Just forgets about him. Two more years go by. He's just sitting in prison. He's running the show there, but he's just sitting there. Two more years. I'm telling you, if I had to wait two years for God to do something right now, I don't even know if I could handle it. We're so wired that when we're in God's plan, it should happen the way we think it should happen in the timing that we think it should happen. We're so wired to expect that if God, I was obedient, I took step one, so step two through a million's on you. Do it. Do it now. But we're like, that's how we're wired. And here's Joseph, two more years in big boy prison. Forgotten about. Suddenly Pharaoh has a dream. His buddy from jail goes, oh, two years have gone by, but I remember this guy. He does the dream thing. You should grab him. So Joseph gets called out of prison. I love the scriptures. It's so, it's so clear. See, he's, like, he's like, they dress him up, right? They don't just pull him out of prison. He gets like a shave. He gets cleaned up before he gets in the presence of Pharaoh. I just love those little details that just tell you the, the, the history of the story. You can imagine this no longer young man, 13 total years have gone by. He was 17, now he's 30. And he's face to face with Pharaoh. Pharaoh's like, hey, I had this dream. Seven fat cows, seven skinny cows, skinny cows ate the fat cows. It's weird. Seven big giant things of grain, seven little wimpy things of grain. Wimpy things just devoured the big ones. What's going on? Joseph says, oh, the Lord has revealed something to you and let me explain it. Your two dreams are one dream, you're going to have seven years of prosperity, but you need to prepare in that time because after that, it's going to be seven years of famine. You need to have someone in that seven years of prosperity put away about a fifth of everything that comes in and store it up and be prepared. And then in the seven years of famine, word will get out that you are the sole person, the sole kingdom on earth that has food. And not only will you be fed, you will have the strongest influence, the most power in the known world. Because if nobody's got food, you're the man. And you'll be able to not only tax that food on the inside, but sell it exponentially for value on the backside. If you prepare like that, you'll be the most successful kingdom in the world. Pharaoh goes, sweet, why don't you do that job? After about 15 minutes, it seems like, with Joseph, 13 years of walking through slavery, mistreatment, prison, he has a moment before the most powerful man that's alive on the planet at that moment, and he gets elevated to the number two position. Pharaoh says, only in matters of the throne will, I, will my voice override yours, but you go run this. And so he does it. And it's amazing. He's successful. He takes, takes in the food. They're selling the food. Well, during this time, his brothers, they're just out living the dream. He has another little brother that's born, Benjamin. His mom passes away in the childbirth of Benjamin. Benjamin's the new favorite son because Joseph's gone. Well, the famine hits, and the brothers recognize, hey, we're going to need to eat. And word is all the food's in where? Egypt. So dad... Israel says, hey, go to Egypt, get us some food. We got some money, we'll buy it. 
They show up to buy food. Guess who's there? Joseph. The scripture's hilarious. You should read the story. I can't make this up. They don't recognize him. He's all Egyptianed out. He's probably got tats and probably bald. I don't know. That's, Hollywood tells me that's what all the Egyptians looked like back then. They got guy liner on. Like, I don't, I don't know. I don't know what he looks like, but they can't recognize him. And he has this incredible moment where he is now 39 years old. Remember, he was 17 the last time he saw these guys. He's now 39 years old, and they're coming to him with his hand, their hands out. And if he doesn't feed them, they'll die. Not only that, he's number two. Remember Potiphar? He works for him now. Execution squads, no problem. Right? I can starve them out. I can imprison them. Hey, guess what? You guys owe me 13 years. You want to eat? 13 years starts today. He has all of that power, all of that authority. But he doesn't do that. I'm going to take you back. Remember we were talking about Jacob and Esau, his dad and his uncle? Remember we were talking about Esau just being angry and on the hunt, ready to kill his brother? Well, Jacob and Esau had a moment where their paths crossed again. Nobody tells this part of the story. No one spends any time with this part of the story. And Jacob has to face his big brother, who he's ripped off, who he's wronged. He's been away from him for almost two decades in hiding. He's got multiple wives. His family is this big blob of family. And he knows that his brother has sworn an oath to kill him and kill everybody. In Genesis chapter 31, backing up in the story, verse 3, it says, The Lord said to Jacob, go back to the land of your fathers and to your relatives, and I'll be with you. Now, this is crazy. The Lord better be with him because Esau wants to kill him. And here comes Jacob, back to see his brother Esau. I want you to catch this. This is really cool. I'm going I'm to tell you, I got to read this story because you won't necessarily believe it. Um, you might, but you just should hear it out of the word. 33 of Genesis 1 says, Jacob looked and looked up and there he saw Esau. He saw Esau on the seesaw. Um, coming, listen, Esau's coming with 400 men. I just want you to catch this. He's got his family and his herds and he's on his way back to go make things right with his brother and he looks up and he sees his brother and his brother has 400 men with him. 400, 400 men. It says, so he divided the children among Leah, Rachel, and the maidservants, the two maidservants. He put the maidservants and the children in the front and Leah and her children next, and Rachel and Joseph were in the rear. He himself went on ahead, and he bowed down on the ground seven times as he approached his brother. Listen to this, verse four. It says, but Esau ran to meet Jacob and embraced him. He threw his arms around him, and he kissed him, and they wept. Then Esau looked up and saw the women and saw the children. He said, who are these with you? He asked, and Jacob answered, they're the children that God has graciously given your servant. Remember, Jacob's now his master. Dad's dead. But he comes to his brother and he says, they're the children that God has graciously given your servant. Now, I want you to catch this. I'm, we're almost there. Then the maidservant and their children approached and bowed down. Verse seven, next Leah and her children bowed down. Last of all came who? Joseph and Rachel. And they too bowed down. I want you to get this flashback. He's a little kid. And his family story is our dad ripped off his brother. And we're out here in the wilderness in this big hodgepodge of a family and we can't go home because Uncle Esau is gonna kill us. And then suddenly it's God said, we gotta go make things right with Uncle Esau. And they're in a family caravan. And here's Uncle Esau and 400 men. And he sees Uncle Esau, Esau gets the rap all the time, being the crazy guy, right? You see Uncle Esau run to his brother, Joseph's dad, hug him, kiss him. Say, who are these? They're my family. And the scriptures want us to know that Joseph saw that. 
that was part of his story. That was part of his vantage point, part of his perspective. He saw Uncle Esau be merciful, even though he'd been wrong, ripped off, cheated, abused by his brother. And now he's 37, and he sees his brothers, and they've ripped him off, and they've robbed him, and he's suffered because of it. In fact, he spent more years than his dad spent cut before this restitution occurs. And he's in the position of power. And he's not just 400 deep. He's a nation deep. He sees this incredible scenario unfolding before him. That's pretty powerful. And what does he do? Verse 50. We're way ahead in the story now. Chapter 19. He messes with them a little bit. You should read the story. It's funny. It says, but Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. They figure out who he is and he says, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? Listen to this. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then don't be afraid. I'll provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and he spoke kindly to them. Do you see the story happening through history? Isn't it incredible? Uncle Esau to his father, through his brothers, to him and back around. Joseph believes that God has a plan. And even in the midst of, of all of this dysfunction, he lives like God still has got this. That's amazing. And he turns around and gives the mercy to his brothers that they did not give to him. He gives the mercy to his brothers that he saw Esau give to his father. That is incredible. You see, at the end of the day, God had a plan for the world. And in order to accomplish that plan, he had to have a plan for Israel. And in order to accomplish that plan, he had to have a plan for Joseph. And God realizes, I'm sorry, Joseph realizes he is a part of this incredible plan that God has for him. The rest of the story is amazing. There's reconciliation. He meets his baby brother, the new favorite, Benjamin. He gets to restore with his dad relationship, and and the entire clan ends up coming to Egypt, and they have the opportunity to proliferate at a rate that would they would have been wiped out without the food and the resources that Joseph was able to provide. Then you get to Exodus, <laughs> and and, uh, and a new Pharaoh and a new season doesn't know them, and the story churns back up, and God's incredible plan in the midst of horrible suffering is available again. You see, God had a plan, and the journey was part of the plan. And for some of us, we're frustrated because the journey hasn't looked like the plan that we had. And we heard, well, God had a plan, but this journey just doesn't look right. God had a plan, but things don't work right. But here's the thing, from God's vantage point, that journey made perfect sense. The problem is we get stuck in our vantage point. We can only see how it affects us. We can only see what it does to our world. We can only see what it does to our immediate need. And we go, hey, this isn't the best way, God, you can do this. But if Joseph doesn't go through this, come on now, God's plan for Israel doesn't happen. God's plan for the tribes doesn't happen. God's plan to restore and redeem a chosen people doesn't happen. God's plan to bring a king by the name of David doesn't happen. God's plan, come on now, in that same line to send his son doesn't happen. Joseph doesn't have 5,000 years of history to look back and see how God did and orchestrated this incredible truth. He just knows in the moment that the God of his fathers has got this. And so he behaves like God has a plan, even when it seems like the plan's gone off the rails. 
pretty amazing. Would you stand? We're going to close. I told a really long story today, but I want you to see that it was heroic. Jacob sought to see things from God's vantage point and that that is heroic. I feel like in this next season of whatever's happening in our church, in our world, in our midst, one of the heroic things we can do is whatever our circumstances is, make a commitment to say, you know what? I may not get what God's doing here. I may turn on the news and go, how could God have this? I may sit at the dinner table and go, how could God have this? I may go to work and go, oh, how can God have this? But if God's people will have God's vantage point and recognize that the God of the universe is still in control. He was still in control when Joseph was being sold into slavery. He was still in control when Joseph was in prison. He was still in control when Joseph was running Egypt. He was still in control when Joseph had an opportunity to take vengeance on us. I don't know about you, but that vengeance opportunity would have been real hard to pass up. At least like one of them. I was like, okay, now I feel better, right? I don't know how you manage that unless you understand God still has a plan for you. And he still has a plan for you. He's still got a plan for me. And he's still got a plan for us. And he's still got a plan for Puyallup. And he's still got a plan for our nation. He's still got a plan. So this phase may not look like we thought it should look or think it should look. But let's have God's perspective. Let's keep the right vantage point. Amen? God, I just pray in this moment, I'm so humbled again by your incredible love, by your unfathomable uh, uh, ability to just be in control in the midst of what seems as though it could have been chaotic. It is not chaotic. You are in control. I pray that today would be one of those moments where our hearts are strengthened, our core is strengthened, our soul is strengthened with this incredible knowledge that the God of the universe has a plan. I pray against fear. I pray against uh, God unforgiveness. I pray against the things that would keep us from trusting in you. I pray in this next season that we would be heroic, not because we're special, but because you have this thing covered and our hope and our trust is in you. God, I thank you so much that we even live in a place where we can have this kind of hope. I pray that this weekend families would have fun and be safe and would celebrate, but we wouldn't lose sight of God in the midst of all of the storms that you've got this. We love you and thank you in Jesus' name, amen.